welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, huge, huge show, John Jughead Pearson of the band Screeching Weasel, also an accomplished actor, a novelist, and host of Jughead's Basement, a fantastic podcast that he puts together um, monthly. More on that in a second. Also on this show, that's right, I've finally tracked it down, thanks to my good friend Chuck Redu, one of the great experiences I've ever had doing this thing live, and that is interviewing Craig Sitari and Fletcher from the House of Vans in New York. My last time going to that building, I'm going to miss it, but oh my gosh, did I come back with a treasure for you. This is, oh boy, that's a hot one though. You'll you'll hear that in a second. Uh, and more on all that in one second. But first, if you would like to get in touch with me, you can send an email to turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find the show on a Facebook page run by my brother and show producer, Tristan Abraham. And uh, you can send a message to him over that. You can also find me on various forms of social media at Left for Damien. If you would like to support the show, the best way of doing that is by telling all of your friends or by subscribing to the show on iTunes, writing a review and rating it on your platform podcast app thing of choice and and that's it you know that's right now that's it for the best ways to support the show but speaking of supporting the show this show would not be possible without the loving kind support from my friends at vans who as you can hear occasionally fly me out to places to interview people live coming back with great episodes like you're going to hear today but also you know just gave me enough money so i didn't have to do this thing out of my pocket anymore which is great because i i i didn't like having to lose money by paying for this thing and putting it up each month. So thanks, Vans, for the support and uh, for this ep- amazing episode. And Chuck Redu, who does all the live production when I'm out doing these things and you know, still looks out for me afterwards, making sure I get the episodes I need, even when I forgot about it. I totally forgot about this one, and then it hit me like, oh my gosh, this thing's missing, and I hit up Chuck, and he let me know that he was going to find it and then he found it and now you get to hear it. Woo. It's a good episode. Okay. I guess that's it. You know, I, I should just roll into talking about the show this week on the show. We've got John Jughead Pearson from the band screeching weasel screeching weasel are one of the, I don't know, like most influential punk bands, uh, from the nineties, even though they start in the eighties, obviously. Uh, and and I was beyond stoked to get to kind of talk to Jughead about this period of the band and, and the early years of the band and his time in the band. Uh, and also find out what it was like to kind of have two worlds going on at once. He also has his own separate career completely outside of the band that was going on at the same time. You'll hear all about it on the show. But this is, this is a great, great conversation with someone I'm a big fan of. Uh, and then after that, you get to hear this wild conversation with Fletcher from Pennywise and Craig Satari, two guys that uh, I have known for a very long time as a fan and also, I guess, as a peer from touring with them a bunch of times, tour mates. And, yeah, it's a, it's a fun one. There's a lot of really good stories in this. 
And uh, yeah, that's it. I'm not going to blather on anymore. We've got two great episodes to get to. Uh, and that's, you know, just the beginning. I've got a lot more cool stuff. Oh my gosh. I'm, I finally, you know, kind of booked a bunch of new guests coming up. And oh, there are some doozies in the near future. But anyway, this is today. And we got a doozy for you right now. So sit back, relax, and enjoy John Jughead Pearson on turned out a pond. Take two, John. Uh, I <laughs> apologize for the first round, but uh, uh, I want to start this off the way I start uh, all these podcasts off, which is how'd you get in a punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across it? Yeah, I feel like I have a division of two stories. And one of them is when I was very young and I used to love spending time alone doing these sort of craft projects and I would do latch hooking. I don't know if you know that. It's what taking it? little it's taking little pieces of yarn and you're you're basically putting them into a uh like a sort of a cloth graph. Okay. And then it be, it becomes a rug. But you can make oh, wow. you know, you can design your own you can design your own pictures in it. So I used to have this little robot transistor radio that I would set next to me and and one time I was listening to uh WXRT, a local station, and uh Should I Stay or Should I Go by the Clash came on and I thought, my God, this guy's voice is horrible, but I can't <laughs> stop. But I can't stop listening to it. Um, so that was sort of the first recognition of it. But when I started actually buying records, was me and my friend friend Matt Nelson. I was, I think, I was probably in a senior in high school. We went to go see Repo Man, which was the movie produced by Michael Nesmith, who I was a big fan of the Monkees. And um, we had we had heard of the Circle Jerks. Um, because my friend Matt had bought an album called uh, Golden Shower of Hits. Uh, so we went based on that, and it kind of blew my mind. The whole movie blew my mind. Um, had you listened to Golden Shower of Hits before you went and saw the movie? Yeah, we did. We okay. did. But what really took me was, you know, they have the sort of hardcore version of uh, the shit hits the fan on the record. But yeah. in the movie, Circle Jerks actually performs in the movie, and they do it in an acoustic version of it. And that's kind of what really got me going on the punk uh, sort of path because I, I realized that the, there was sort of an irony or that uh, punk allowed for this sort of uh, a comedic take on the the norm, you know? Mm-hmm. So it, it really, I went out and bought a bunch of, I bought the Angry Samoans from there and Adrenaline OD. Um, so that's where it started for me. What about, like, you know, uh, neither of those bands are on the Repo Man soundtrack. Like, what brought you to those bands of, you know, were they, I guess, both in the A section? <laughs> yeah, I was working my way through yeah. the alphabet. It's going to be a long time till you got to the Zero Boys. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I mean, basically, I, it's kind of, you know, it's mixed up a little because around that same time, maybe like a half a year later, I met Ben, uh, Ben Foster, mm-hmm. Ben Weasel from, uh, who worked at the, well, I met him again. We met a couple times and then we finally solidified our friendship. And he was more into, uh, he collected a lot of that. When he was uh, away in a sort of a juvie home in in Maine, he sort of uh, came to know uh, Black Flag and a lot of those more hardcore bands. So between my friend Matt and Ben is where sort of the uh, recognition of Adrenaline OD and Angry Samoans came. But those are the two that really took me because mm-hmm. I, I like the sense of humor a lot. I mean, that's kind of important to me in that music at, at, at that time. Yeah, definitely. And both those bands are also, you know, really fast. 
Yeah, yeah, they are. <laughs> well, Adrenaline OD, you know, I did a podcast on them, and they're really great guys, and they don't get enough appreciation for what they were doing then. But uh, they got so fast. Like, if you look at their live material, it's even faster than than they were uh, playing on the records. That was kind of like their thing. They they said the more that they didn't, they got tired of playing a song, so their challenge <laughs> was to keep playing it faster and faster. <laughs> it's funny too because that it's it's amazing how like. You know, obviously there were very serious bands also out of New Jersey, but like most of the hardcore that was coming out of New Jersey at that time is definitely like, you know, of the wackier variety or like a little bit more of a sense of humor than compared to the stuff that was coming out at the same time in New York. I guess there was silly stuff in New York too. Yeah, I wonder if it comes from being like, you know, you're outside of New York, so you're more of an observer, like a voyeur. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you can see the comedy of situations a little bit more. That might be have something to do with it. Definitely. So where did you kind of go from like... You know, you get into these these two, you know, very fast bands. Were you playing music by this point, or? Um, I had always toyed with playing guitar, but I never really committed to it until me and Ben started to talk about starting a band. So that's when I bought a new guitar. I had a Hondo, which was like the really cheap when you're growing up and you want to be in a metal band. You sort of <laughs> buy these one hundred one hundred dollar Hondos at like record stores. That's what I had. And it was a Strat that was based on, or a Strat cover, because there's a Hondo. Uh, so I was influenced by Richie Blackmore and all that stuff. Um, but I, I just kind of never was really a very good uh, guitar player. My friend John Braun was amazing, so I was kind of daunted. And I sort of set it down again until I uh, met Ben. And he had just seen the Ramones, so he was really excited. We worked at a movie theater together, and he came in one day and just said he wanted to start a band. And I said, okay. You know, like you mentioned being in the metal stuff, were you aware of any of the Chicago metal stuff that was happening kind of around the same time? You know, really, I wasn't. It's really odd. You know, I, I came from the suburbs and I had a friend that was a uh, a journalist for the Herald. So we used to go to a lot of metal shows. Yeah. So I, I, I immediately was uh, more familiar with a lot of, you know, touring bands, but I didn't know much about uh, Chicago metal at all. So when you guys, you know, first formed the band, where did you fit in locally? Like what was kind of happening you know, like, you know, that I think, I think the fascinating to me about Chicago is like, you obviously have a very storied first wave punk scene, but as the eighties went on, like, I guess articles of faith keep going. A lot of those bands keep going, but you know, it wasn't until kind of you guys and, and, and then, you know, there's like the whole kind of wave of stuff after that, that where Chicago really gets going in the nineties. But like, so where did you guys fit in when you first formed? Um, you know, we really were just, we were suburban boys, you know, Mm -hmm. we, we didn't know much about the city except, uh, from, you know, we, um, you know, Ben, uh, you know, read maximum rock and roll. So we learned about our own city from like magazines. Um, so we actually started our own club in the suburbs, uh, called dirty Nellies in Palatine, which is, so we started inviting bands that couldn't get into the city, you know, to play all ages shows there. But, 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 you know, there's a story I tell about there was a sort of a relationship between the suburbs and the city that was kind of estranged at first. Uh, you know, we were huge fans of Naked Raygun and Articles of Faith and Effigies, but, but there was just, they were, they seemed like city people to us and we were just these stupid suburban kids. Um, but they, 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 they had, but we would venture into the city occasionally to play a show and uh, there was a band called the Bhopal Stiffs that sort of bridged that gap a little more. They became um, uh, Naked Raygun and um, the guy, the lead Larry from Bhopal Stiffs started Peg Boy. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but he used to invite us into the city to play shows at a club. So we became more, you know, associated with the, what I called the blue collar, uh, Chicago, you know, punk rock in those days, um, which also had big black, but they were sort of a slightly different, different movement there. Um, Oh, but what I was going to say is they, we actually got invited to a bachelor party of Jeff Pizzotti from the singer from Naked Ray Gun. Yeah. And I, I remember we went there and they seemed like these old guys and they were all like smoking, you know, cigars and playing poker. And we were just <laughs> we were like at Thanksgiving, you know, you have the kids table. We were yeah. like set off to the side with this, this other band. Uh, I can't remember. They're called Out of Order. That's what they were. They, oh, they're they, I think they put great band. Two, yeah, so we were basically put at a side table at, at like the at Jeff Pizzotti bachelor party, and it really it struck home that we were like, "Wow, we're a different scene." But yeah. they respect us, but we're not really part of their thing. That's um, awesome. And later on, yeah, later on, people would bridge that gap. Like Dan Vapid uh, plays with Jeff Pizzotti a lot, so we sort of bridged that gap later on. But at the beginning, we just knew we had to start our own thing. You mentioned Bobel Stiffs, and I think that's one of the bands that is super underrated. Like, you know, such a such a cool band. Like that seven inch and twelve inch. Obviously, not seeing them live, but I love those records. Uh, they were, they might still be my top favorite live band I've ever seen. Yeah, they were just so powerful. You had Larry and Vince, who were these big, big guys. Mm-hmm. You know, and and they these guitars in their hands were like I don't know, <laughs> they were like little toys. <laughs> and they would just th- thrash on them so hard that it would just blow my mind. Like every show I went to go see those guys, I just loved them. And uh, the drummer was really great. He played all his drums on one level, which I had never seen before or since. Like there was no level. It was just one straight parallel level of drums that he would just hover over That's around awesome. the kick drum. So they're all, Yeah. Um, how did you guys get hooked up with underdog records? Like you're one of the early bands on there, obviously, but that's, that's once again, like a super storied label. Well, underdog changed hands and became a collective, but it started out, uh, from one man who's actually still a really good friend of mine, Russ Forster, um, who was in a band called, uh, fudge tunnel. Oh yeah. And he would just put out whatever he liked. And we met him at a place called, uh, Batteries not included, which was one of the only few uh, city venues that we would play, you know, like to nobody, basically, you know, <laughs> we would go there and play like the midnight show and no one would be there. But uh, but we all we often played with Bhopal Stiffs and uh, Fudge Tunnel. So he just he said, what, I mean, you know, we had recorded uh, a demo and then we were going to go back into the same studio, Solid Sounds with Phil Bonet, who produced uh smoking popes later on um but we didn't have a label we were just going to do it ourselves so i think we just got in a conversation with russ one night at at uh batteries not included then he said he would do it Mm -hmm. and then later on then later on underdog became more of a collective where he's i think he even might be separated himself from it a little bit russ and then doug ward took it over what was the influence early on in screeching was like obviously you know you guys find melody you know, a couple releases later, but the first stuff's pretty raging, pretty straight up kind of hardcore stuff. What were like your guys kind of sonic influences, obviously adrenaline OD, but what else? Yeah. I mean, in rehearsal, we would do a lot of, uh, uh, circle jerk songs and like 
early, early, uh, basically anything Greg Hetson was in. <laughs> we used to do early bad religion, bad religion, like Frogert from that record. And, yeah. uh, any Red Cross songs? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, we used to do the, well, it became a circuit jerk song. What is that one? Yeah. So Greg, I haven't thought about these in a long time. Um, but that's, that was a big influence. And I really think the, almost the more, uh, what, when we started doing melodic solos, I mean, Ramones of course is always in the background there, no matter what. I mean, um, I wasn't as big a fan as Ben was, but it's always there. But that became more later on after Riverdale's and we reformed became more a part of associated with us in the beginning. It was more of the joke, hardcore bands. And, um, and like, and I, I, I think my struggling to try to be able to play an Iron Maiden solo or a Judas <laughs> Priest solo sort of helped invent the uh, melodic solos that we were doing. And Ben came from the same background, too, you know, Judas Priest and UFO and a lot of those melodic uh, metal bands were a big part of our life. Well, yeah, it's so funny because, like, your guys' sound is so iconic that it's like I can think of countless bands that were influenced you know, by you guys and sound like, Oh, they're a screeching weasel band, you know, but, it, but it's like, who would have, you know, helped, you know, create that sound for you guys has always been fascinating to me. So it's nice to know that metal was in there somewhere too. Yeah. I mean, you know, descendants were always there in the background cause they started a little bit, you know, before us. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's often, I don't know. Movements are sort of a, a rebellion against another movement and, and Chicago had been really taken over by the hardcore, uh, very political, heavy, hardcore music, which became less and less melodic and more about, uh, you know, a, a platform for, you know, uh, for spewing politics. And uh, I think we sort of had a, a a musical rebellion against that to sort of try to bring the melodic back into music. Because I remember it was a pretty big shock when uh, to our bass player when we started doing more melodic music. He just he was like, oh, that's not going to go anywhere, you know. <laughs> but me and Ben were really attracted to that sort of more uh, melodic sounding music. Yeah, like what was it? Do you think that you know you you mentioned the Descendants, you know, being there and the Ramones being there too? But like, what was it that kind of brought you to the idea of putting that melody in there and kind of moving more away from the more jokey hardcore stuff? I think you know I. It, in a weird way, I think it was the same way the Ramones came to it, though. It was just the the way they knew how to play. Like, we liked a lot of the bubblegum 60s music, and uh, Tommy James and the Shondells were huge. And since we had just begun to play guitars, our our only thing we could do is play the, the bar chord, you know? Yeah. At first, we only used the t- the E and the... I have to always do e, eat a dead dog, e, the E and the A string <laughs> <laughs> and would just go up and down the fret just using that one string. So it, it became uh, it made sense for us to be doing these sort of more simple melodic songs. Uh, one album that I've always wanted to find out about, because I only have the cover of this record. Like one time I bought a bunch of records out out uh out west somewhere and i got the sleeve for this but that oz fish experience split seven inch uh i don't think it ever came out though right oh um well no it didn't you know i was actually one of the only ones that uh that had uh, a seven inch of it but 
my my gas got turned off in the middle of winter when it was negative 20 degrees and i sold it <laughs> oh i can understand well why you had to do that but um it, uh, but basically it the 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 pressing plant burned down and all we got was the test pressings that they had sent us like a day before so all of the tapes and everything was lost so i had one and then warren from the ozfish had the other and then there's a story that you guys got some sleeves and you know, gave away the sleeves at a show or something. Yeah. Well, you know, we had everything it was supposed to, no, we had everything ready. We had a show scheduled. We had oh. all the sleeves made and then the plant burned down and we lost everything. So, Oh my God. Well, that was that before the first LP even. <laughs> I, my timeline sometimes gets messed up. We had, uh, an older version of I hate Led Zeppelin on it. So it must've been before, yeah. b- right before Bogota. Yeah. Right before Bogota. Oh, wow. Okay. So that must have been a little disheartening because that was also like your guy's label, right? I don't even know if we were doing, I, 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 if without it in front of me, you know, I'll, I'll, I often know things by the name. It's all Weaselfish uh, Records. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was, we were just, Warren and uh, Ben were just putting out ourselves. We paid for everything. Um, so that was just, that was us. Um, because I think I think we, even when we worked with Underdog, we weren't really uh, weren't really thinking of that as a label. It was just mm-hmm. a, an avenue as you know to put music out. So I don't even think we really felt like we were on a label at that point. So we just did it ourselves. It's funny because you guys also wind up doing something on what goes on records, right? Like they, I think they did a pressing of one of the records. I know there's a split with Moving Targets that came out on that. What goes on records? Yeah. That European la- or that I think it was a British label. They put a lot of British records. I know. Yeah, I I won't, I'm not going to be able to tell you much about that. That's true. Um, that that little that little seven inch has become really uh, expensive and hard to find. Oh yeah. And I remember I I had a bunch of them that were just laying around, and I would like get up out of bed and crack one by stepping on it. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but and it had my the song that I wrote the music for, which was BPD, which is kind of a stupid stupid songs so it was a stupid seven inch to me but now it's like a collector's item well it's funny because that's like that must have been well i don't know i don't know how it felt for you guys as a band but like that was a legit label right like they they were putting out you know big name bands coming out of australia at the time like they were putting out big stuff did you guys kind of feel at that point like this was going to be some sort of stepping stone to to like touring maybe australia or or you know, taking the band, like, was it already a real band at this point more than just being like something that was a hobby? Yeah. I, you know, out of the gate, I mean that, that me and I often think about this, that me and Ben were not only like creative artists, but we were kind of like businessmen. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we even started the band without recognition that we were going to do something with it immediately. I mean, we didn't know what, (laughs) <laughs> but it was it it was never just for fun. I mean, Ben and I didn't hang out even as friends, really. We just started the band because we both had a mutual wanting, you know, to to be in a band. Wow, like so um, what? So I don't, I'm sorry. So that no, just to answer your question, that yeah. that seven inch I think was was really nothing to us. Is someone just wanted to put it out and and then we moved on. Well, yeah, because at that but, but at that point, you guys are on the same label as the replacements. You know, and like, you know, Yola Tango and, and Bitch Magnet, like bands that were kind of like, you know, like touring at least on some sort of circuit at that point in like the pre-alternative boom kind of way. 
Were you guys thinking about doing that? Were you touring at this point already? Uh, we started touring with we our first tour was with Sponge Tunnel, so that was probably around 80, 80 yeah, eighty seven probably. Okay. Yeah, so we were already touring eighty six. Yeah, our we got out of we got out of Chicago pretty fast. I mean, it was Ben and I had always said that one of the things that I thought we had thought kind of ruined. I mean, Naked Ray Gun is a classic band that everyone loves now, but they weren't doing well. And one of the reasons we thought was is because they played the same venue every, you know, they played the Metro every mm -hmm. month. And mm -hmm. that's what all these bands were doing in Chicago. They were just playing, especially punk bands, were just playing the same venue, protecting their ground. And we immediately said, we're just going to get out of our own city. And so really early on, we started touring probably around, we started in 86. We probably started touring in 87. And what were those early tours like? Like what was, you know, kind of the world that you guys were playing out to at that time? Um, it was difficult. It was, you know, because as you, as you probably know, is there was no cell phones and stuff. So it was, yeah. <laughs> you know, and then there was no clubs that would take our band. So it's basically, it was maximum rock and roll. And there's, there's this other, uh, network, uh, book your own fucking life. I think it was yep. called something yep. like that. That was the max. Rock we and were roll all sort of, yeah. 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 So we, uh, we had that and then we just started making connect. I started a, uh, thing where I posted in maximum rock and roll that I wanted to start my own network. So I, so people started sending me cassettes of their band and that's how we met the pink Lincolns and the queers and a couple other bands. So we just made connections and, and just try to work away from, you know, point A to point B and stop at point a point one, you know, along the way, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, just, and it was mostly just whoever had sent us letters, you know, I would call them and say, Hey, let's play your basement or let's get a VFW hall. And it was, you know, just, it was basically people and their friends at the beginning. Yeah. Like, cause it's kind of like the, I guess the tail end of the, you know, original hardcore boom that had happened. Like what were the you know, like you're finding these kind of disparate bands, I guess, around America that were all kind of finding this melodic sound around the same time. Um, did you kind of feel like there was a scene kind of building to what would ultimately happen a few years later? I don't think we really felt that until uh, we we uh, hooked up with the Berkeley scene. Mm -hmm. You know, when we went out, we actually drove all the way to gilman street for for two shows basically we didn't have any any shows from here to there <laughs> <laughs> and that's when we met uh you know people from crim shrine we met jesse from operation ivy and and we met uh uh isocracy um john's uh or what was it he called himself al sobrante is what he called himself but then he would later start green day mm -hmm. so we started a so the early tours where we did with uh fudge tunnel were not really our scene it's because there's yeah. no really uh, a scene yet they were just it was just outcasts you know going wherever they could go yeah. but it didn't really start becoming a uh, scene until we we sort of hooked up at the gilman street people um and one band that i've kind of always wondered like did you have any encounters with sloppy seconds in this sort of like early era that's funny because I was just I just actually heard from Danny today, uh, who used to be in the band, uh, okay. Danny Thompson. Yeah, uh, I'm, try I'm trying to uh, trying to get a hold of those guys. Uh, we we did a little bit, 
Uh, you know, they were from Indiana, and also, you know, we had sort of a connection with Zero Boys, and uh, Master Genie, our producer, was, uh, you know, from Lafayette, Indiana, mm-hmm. and he had, he had uh, his first band was uh, Rat Tail Grenadier and then uh, Squirt Gun, so we would, ha- we, we'd often play shows with Zero Boys, yeah, so they were in our network of, of friends. Because you guys would ultimately write probably the best answer song ever in punk rock. <laughs> Uh, with them. And I was just wondering, was like, you know, and also I'm really curious how the connection with Bruce LaBruce came about too, but I think there's such an amazing story or legend that goes along with that song that I'd be really intrigued to kind of hear, you know, like obviously your version of that story to find out if the legend is anything like the reality, but, um, like, so like they were on your radar already by that point. Uh, you mean sloppy seconds? Yeah. Sloppy seconds. Oh yeah, yeah. We had we had booked them at uh, Dirty Nelly's, uh, our you know our club. So we were we were definitely connected with them. So it wasn't like a uh, hostile reaction to their song at all. It was more of just a, f- a funny response to it. Okay. Um, it's hard for me. It's hard for me to talk about the meanings of things because I was more like the the outer guy and Ben was the inner guy. But uh, it was it was more of a I don't even think it's like, I think their song is fairly ironic too. So it's Absolutely, basically yeah. two ironic songs, uh, basically pro, you know, homosexual <laughs> when it comes down to it. But ours sort of, ours sort of became more apparent to the, to the gay lesbian scene that it was supporting their endeavors, you know? Well, and I also heard Bruce LaBruce had some sort of involvement early on in that song. Were you guys already friends with them by that point? Or is that just part of the legend? Well, yeah, yeah. Ben, you know, Ben was con- was in contact with everybody. Both of us were big pen pals in general, so uh, he had already been talking to Bruce LeBruce. And then when we, uh, I could be getting this wrong, but when we went out to Berkeley to record "My Brain Hurts," Larry wanted "I Want to Be Homosexual" on the record because we had done a version of it earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, they made two different versions of it earlier. Um, and Bruce LeBruce wanted it on his seven inch. So there was sort of a, a debate on where it was going to actually go. But in our minds, it was always pretty clear that Bruce LeBruce was going to have it. And uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I always forget this, but he had another uh, friend that actually ran the label that put out the seven inch. Shred of Dignity uh, but was they the both, label, right? Yes. Yeah. And there's another guy that was involved. And Ben will probably get down on me for not remembering his name, but. <laughs> But he was actually the man behind getting the record released, and they came out and uh, and spent some time with us when we were in San Francisco, and then we went and stayed with them when we were in. Uh, where are they in? Are they in Montreal? Were they in Toronto? Where were Toronto. They? Montreal? I think. I think. Well, I don't know. Toronto, maybe at that yeah. point he was at living in Toronto, but he's yeah, definitely a Toronto um, sort of fixture. Um, were you? Yeah, because like- I remember because Ben Ben was in one of his films, and it was filmed overnight, and I was. I was the only one still up. The other guys went to sleep and I'm there trying to get to sleep. And Ben's filming with Bruce LeBruce, like some sort of fake, uh, I think sucking him off sort of scene. <laughs> Super eight and a half is the name of the movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, you know, more than I do. About oh this. no, that's a classic. It's a Canadian film classic. I, I've definitely, <laughs> you know, I, I, I yeah. certainly have seen that movie. And like as a young person, finding out there's this connection to Toronto and that song and that movie. It was, it was a mind blowing kind of revelation to have at 14 for me. Well, do you know that I'm actually half Canadian? My, my dad was never American. He was from Montreal. Oh, really? 
Yeah, yeah. I have, I have half of my family lives up in Montreal, so. There we go. It's like a, mo- a lot of the best stuff comes from that that city anyway. Yeah, yeah. Forgotten Rebels are there and Teenage Head. Or, you know, no, that's Hamilton. Canada. Hamilton, yeah. Those are both, yeah, Hamilton bands. I love both those classic things. But I guess, like, back to kind of the journey that you guys were on. So, you know, when you get out to Berkeley and you, and you make these connections, did it feel like at that point that there was – you know, this sort of groundswell of stuff happening or did it still very much feel like something that was underground? It still felt like we were just a bunch of friends hanging out. Uh, I think I often talk about where it really sort of hit me is when, um, my brain hurts came out. Like Mm -hmm. we, we had, we were on a tour directly after that and people were just all of a sudden singing our songs. Like I remember doing a show in, uh, Philadelphia is like this horrible, like scary looking club. And I was like, Oh my, Oh shit. No one's going to show up to this thing. And it, we packed it and it was just still really, you know, it was hardly a monitor system. There It was just basically someone's stereo system as a PA, you know, <laughs> and everyone started singing the songs. It was, that's where I sort of realized, uh, there was a little bit of a movement cause the queers were playing with us a lot then too. And, and we had, uh, you know, the Mr. T experience. We had always been f- big fans, me and Ben, of Mr. T experience. So, But they became sort of part of that scene, too. They were a little bit separate at first. And then once they moved in with our sort of antics, it really started becoming a, like a, a strong scene in itself. People like sharing songs and sharing ideas. Well, I definitely want to talk about this era, but I would not be doing Turn It a Punk justice if I didn't bring up uh, your label, Roadkill Records, which, you know, I think once again puts out some of the best bands, you know, Bopal Stiffs, obviously, and everything like that. How did that label come together? Uh, Roadkill was me and Ben were basically, uh, we were trying to move into the city and we were basically sleeping on the floor of this guy named Dave Best who was a friend of uh, Master Genie. He was from Lafayette. His brother uh, was in the original Rat Tail Grenadier band. I can't remember his name. One of the bests. Um, but he wanted to start a label, so uh, Mass introduced him to me and Ben, and then we moved in with him, basically, and started running the label. And I think, yeah, Bogado was the first to come out on that. Yeah, well, you guys had done the um, Punk House 7-inch before that, but I think that was on, like, no-budget records, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was uh, basically a guy, I'm pretty sure he did, like, commercials for radio commercials. Okay. So he had a little teeny, yeah, he had a little teeny, teeny, teeny studio, and he decided that he wanted to start bringing bands in to record 7-inches. So that's how that came to be about, the Punk House that's such an um, amazing single too. Like what a perfect kind of punk record that thing is. I, yeah, that's one of the ones I'm really proud of. I mean, the sound is, I, you know, you know, people probably like it cause it is really punk sounding. Yeah, exactly. It's really hor- horrible sounding. I, I basically had this thing happen where I wasn't even in the, in the state when we were working on this and I almost missed the recording and I got there just in time to do my parts and then, my guitar was out of tune. Everyone was pissed at me. <laughs> That's basically, you know, early on I learned my lesson to be responsible, and that was the worst it ever got. And then ever since then I was 
never late and always, you know, pretty much in charge of a lot of the rehearsals and recordings and all that stuff. But well, I learned a lot of lessons on that punk house. I'm still learning that lesson. I have not learned that lesson myself and I've been <laughs> in a band for a long time. I should have learned it by now. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like it, that, that single and kind of, you know, from that point on, it's almost like you guys get the more melodic kind of feel the, the sound. I guess before that too. Yeah. Well, I, too. yeah I really, uh, he doesn't, another one who doesn't get a lot of credit for the band was vermin. I almost, you know, people call the classic band with, Panic and Vapid, which, and me and Ben, which I, it is, but it started with when Brian Vermin was in the band because he had this sort of really punk snotty attitude and him and Ben would get along so well. So it really sort of, and Punk House really sort of has that spirit. I think that's probably because of, you know, how much they got along. Mm-hmm. And we actually, re, you know, rehearsed in his uh, mother's basement. Um, so it was kind of a really communal family back then. Yeah, absolutely. That, that definitely has that kind of, uh, I don't know, like a punk house kind of vibe to the, to the record, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so and that's we, where we were staying. You know, we didn't have money for hotels, so yeah. we were, punk houses was really, you know, that was basically our life, you know. Yeah, but all that, that you know, and the there's one thing that's consistent is that that song still holds true for punk houses everywhere, I think. Like, that is <laughs> still a fitting anthem for for many of the punk houses I've stayed at a tour too over the yeah, years. Agreed. Um, <laughs> so how did kind of the relationship with lookout records start? Like, were you guys aware of it before you kind of went out West? Um, well, we had met Larry early on at this uh, place called the, uh, the ashtray, which is where we, uh, we used to stay. It's, I think Jesse used to live there and, um, a couple people from isocracy and he would stop by, basically hang out with the kids, uh, Larry. And he, I think he had just started the label. And, um, you know, Ben was really pushing hard to be on the label. And But Larry at that time was only interested in bands that were from Berkeley. Um, but we eventually sort of, we eventually got him to the point where he, he wanted to put out a record. So we were the first band outside of Berkeley to be on the label. Yeah, that's the thing. It's it's like you guys were the band he made the exception for, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah, I remember. We actually, uh, I remember we went to a, a pizza joint, and I kind of left Ben alone to to do his magic with Larry. And I remember standing outside waiting to see what happened. And then Ben walked out and said, "Yeah, I got it. We got him." <laughs> <laughs> what was it about that? Like uh, like that label. You know, like if for, you know, I don't know if it's about being in that area at that time, obviously that played a part in it, but like, or just, you know, Larry's ear, but like Neurosis, Operation Ivy, Crimp Shrine, like what, you know, obviously you guys as well, but like what a run of bands that would go on to become classic bands in their respective genres. Green Day. Yeah. I, you know, yeah, I think in general, you know, I, you know, a lot of people just gravitated towards California. Most of them, a lot of them weren't even, you know, originally from California. So a lot of musicians at that time were migrating there. Um, so it made sense that there were a lot of good musicians out there. And I think Larry just had a really good ability of, of watching a band and, and, and nurturing a band and, you know, letting them know that they were good enough to be heard. You know, he had a talent for that. He was really, he was really good at it. He, he, Definitely is was a really strong 
presence in the scene and sort of gathering bands. Yeah, like I think, you know, you look right the way through that label, like the whole way. And I obviously it finds a certain sound um, at a certain point. But like early on, there's there's no no one to pinpoint, like, you know, from you guys to the Yeasty Girls. Like there's really not a sonic <laughs> through line. No, no. But it's fu- kind, of, kind of funny because, we, you know, we started out just talking about roadkill. And one of the problems that we me and Dave and uh, Ben had with Dave Bass is that almost out of the gate, he wanted to really start doing very different bands. Like he wanted to start doing some jazz bands <laughs> on the label and other, and other bands. And, and, and even though I, I like, I'm eclectic and I like different music, yeah. I think we realized then that you, you can't confuse an audience like that. They need, you know, you need to have some sort of system before you start going off the rails, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but I think what, on the other hand, I think Larry had enough of a sense of, what was still, you know, on the tail ends of the genre or around it to just kind of do whatever he wanted, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. Um, or it failed with Dave Best? I mean, it didn't work with him. <laughs> well, you guys definitely, though, put out, you know, what a run of cool records that you guys put out. Like, obviously, there was that that uh, Effigies reissue. Oh, you guys did do a Sloppy Seconds record. I'm sorry. I totally forgot about that Where Equals Dare single. Um, but Bopal oh, Stiffs. Oh, that- did. We also did. Yeah, we also did a Sludgeworth one that I'd forgot about until I was talking to Vapid a little while ago. I yeah. forgot that we put out their 7-inch. Yeah, the self-titled one. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the No Empathy record, which is one of the first Chicago records I ever got. On a trip to Chicago, yes. no less. Yes, we have a long relationship with... Uh, why, well, she's, you're getting me on a night where I'm just forgetting names. <laughs> Don't worry. What's, what's, <laughs> There's a lot. This show is all about information <laughs> overload. So uh, I... No one's expected to remember everything. It's not a test. Uh, Johan, you know, I remember his label later was Johan's face. What the, what is his name? He was the singer for No Empathy. Um, yeah, because oh, I was Mark. just talking to him. Mark, yes, yeah. Because yeah. uh, Mark had been in, uh, he started in bands before we did. Like No Empathy started before us. I saw him in like a, it was a, it was an underage dance club in the suburbs and his band, no empathy played. And it blew my mind. Like they were so good, just raw, hardcore at that point. He went through a bunch of different stages of taking on different sort of genres, but I always thought he was incredible. And then, and you know, he did a lot of other great stuff. You know, I was talking to him recently because he put out the smoking Pope's first record. So yeah, no, that, that labels once again, like a, a great run of really different sounding stuff. Did, yeah, is that the what the uh, is that? There's a fungus among us comp. Did he put that out? That's a good question. Whoa, <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember. That's probably that's probably possible. I remember. Uh, it might be his. That's a killer comp, and that's and that, another band that like I think also doesn't get talked about from Chicago nearly enough is Gear. Oh, I you know actually I just saw Joe the drummer the other night. Um, he's he was one of the best drummers in the city. Um, but Garrett, yeah, Garrett is really good on that. Uh, and, um, I actually love our version of slogans. I think that's on that one. Mm-hmm. That's one of my, one of my favorite songs that we've ever played or is that song. And I, I love that version of it. Um, and it's really cool. Like you get on that comp, like a, I guess a good slice of what would have been like the late eighties Chicago scene with bubble stiffs, you guys target only the strong who you mentioned. Um, and, uh, and the, and gear of course. Where did yeah, you- yeah, Gear were they were just yeah they were another really good melodic band. They were very descendants driven, you know. They were 
basically the the the, the sons of descendants. <laughs> <laughs> the descendants of the descendants. <laughs> yeah, the descendants of the descendants. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, like, when you uh, with the lookout records, that obviously, um, you know, when things started kind of taking off, what was it like? across America at that time, it's like the post Nirvana kind of like 1991, like the post Nirvana grunge thing. It kind of happened, but did it feel like there was this new thing, you know, you were saying coalescing underneath you guys. Um, it, it was, I mean, sadly we, we stopped touring when it really got big. Yeah. Um, so we didn't really, I never experienced an audience more than 300 until we, you know, we played out again in 2001, which was years and years and years later. Um, so we didn't really, besides that, like that Philadelphia experience I talked about you and I talked about, and then this tour we did with the queers. Um, it was, it was still a very small scene when we, when we sort of stopped touring. Were you guys getting approached by major labels? Like, obviously imagine that would have happened post green day, like people coming knocking on your guys door. We, we did, we, uh, we did actually turn down one of them. I I can't remember which one, but, uh, but they weren't really that interested in us. They knew that we were sort of trouble (laughs) and, uh, they knew, you know, they mostly knew who Ben was and, and he actually at that time didn't have a voice that they liked. They didn't like how sort of raw his voice sounded. Mm -hmm. So we weren't, we were pursued once and then we said no. And then they sort of gave up. And it was, it was, it wasn't even in our peripheral from then. Were you watching it kind of all explode when it was happening? Like, cause you know, you mentioned you guys weren't really touring around like how to make enemies, which I guess would have been the record that would have come out right at the height of, of everything that was happening. Yeah. Well, well, you know, Mike has, was on that record and, yeah. um, when he was basically recording with us is when it exploded. Like when he came to stay with us, they were still in, in big debt. You know, they didn't have any money at all. Um, cause I remember him saying that he could, you know, barely get there. And then, and then it just went crazy. You know, they did the Woodstock and then things went nuts after that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. It, it, it felt, you know, even back then I always felt like Green Day were a, a part of a different scene than us. It was, it was odd. They weren't, you know, we never played with them except for in the, the you know, the very beginning when they first became a band. Mm-hmm. And then we stopped playing out. So it was, uh, it didn't really feel like the same, uh, scene to me. It's funny. Cause as a kid that was kind of like, you know, experiencing it as a fan, uh, that was always the connection the press made, you know? And like, it was, you know, like it was obviously they bring up operation Ivy and, and rancid, but it was also like screeching weasel, you know? And I think for, uh, you know, like sonically, it just made sense, but it's funny because, you know, you guys predate them certainly and, and stuff, but you, that you guys never really felt like they're part of the same scene. Yeah, I really, you know, we used to, when they started doing really well, I mean, it was just, just so the audience knows, it was so obvious that they were going to do well. Their move to a, saw it. Yeah. Yeah. Their move to a major label was kind of a given that they had, they almost had to. You know, Lookout couldn't really do anything for them anymore. Um, and we saw that, you know, they would always play, like I said, we never toured with them, but they were, we always played the same venues. And it was just, it was insane. Like, you know, they packed places, you know, and have two or three shows and still all sold out. And we'd still be dribbling audience members in. 
<laughs> but I mean, it, there was like no, not even any jealousy or anything like that. It was just to me, it just felt like it was a different scene. I, I don't, I can't stress it enough. It just didn't. It seemed like a different world to me. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really go through all of that. Even Ben went through that a little bit. Like our friends are becoming famous. You know, Doctor Frank went through that. But I didn't really, I didn't really feel that that much. Were Were you like you know uh, Were you a fan or like aware of the other I guess thing that was happening in punk at the same time Like Fat Mike certainly was on your record, but like that sort of epithet sound that was simultaneously kind of taking off a little bit. Um, you know, I was not at all. Um, I did like the um, the record. I always forget the name. The the Jeeb. What's that one called? Where the, it's all their bellies. Oh, uh, white trash. <laughs> two heaves and a bean. Yeah, that that um is pretty great, and yeah. that was always playing while we were touring. Like one of our last tours, that was playing everywhere we went. Um, so we, I was aware of that scene, but it wasn't. Uh, there was no crossover at that time. It was it was very separate. Well, because yeah, you you also have this sort of parallel life, I guess, going on, which is your your work in the theater, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For um, like the most, I was like the first. I don't know. Eight years of the band, I was one for one. Like, uh, I would uh, create a record, and then I would have a play come out. So, I think it was like I, I was ten for ten for a while. Then, then, then it kind of went went different wise. You know, I'd have a couple more records than another play. But I was during that whole time, I was uh, writing and producing plays too. Yes. Do you think that helped kind of keep you grounded a little bit to to have these kind of like twin passion so it wasn't like you had to constantly exist in the headspace of the band that i you know you know ben made me come to sort of see that he had said to me one day way back that he admired that i had uh you know basically an, an escape from the punk scene whereas he felt like he was weighed down by it because he was writing for it a maximum rock and roll he was writing the songs he was you know he was sort of sort of seen as the figurehead of the band so I, I really think it did sort of alleviate a lot of that that weight mm-hmm. for me mm-hmm. to have both of those. And I kind of like creatively, I like to be working on two or three different things at once. So I think it just kind of makes sense in general for me. So were you like able to kind of like, like during this time where you're not touring, was that just, did you, were you just able to kind of focus on the work as far as, you know, the other, the other work that you did? Well, yeah, but you know that's the thing that I think a lot of people don't understand when they're looking at a band from the outside. They don't, you know, I I don't think there was a day that went by from '86 to 2006 where I wasn't working on the band. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because Ben and I were in contact all the time. We were running our own panic button labels. We were booking the tour. We were looking over contracts. You know, we had no lawyers or managers or anything like that or accountants. So um, I don't really differentiate uh, the the theater as much from the band because we i was doing them both simultaneously well i guess you guys are still also putting out records right and that's at a time when records were still selling considerable quantities so i imagine there'd be a lot of administrative work to do too yeah yeah and you know when you have a a singer that goes through other members <laughs> like people <laughs> go through toilet paper <laughs> I, I was the accountant, so I had to keep track of where everyone was moving around and send out royalties. And, you know, you know, I had like spreadsheets before there was even spreadsheet programs, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I was in charge of the uh, studio costs and I would book everything. And so, that, yeah, there was always work to be done. 
you know, there's a scale of bands where you just have people that do all that work for you. And then there's a scale of bands where you don't have to worry about it. But then there's this other scale where it's like you do have taxable income coming in and, and you do have to account for that. And you do have, you know, budgets to contend with and things like that. So it's, it's amazing to kind of see like, you know, our, in our band, it's our bass player, Sandy, that does most of that stuff. She really takes that on and is able to kind of do that stuff. But there always has to be someone in the band to do that if you're going to keep going. Yeah, we basically split it. Uh, ben was in charge of the the sort of lawyer, uh, and I was in front in charge of the the accountant sort of the band. So we sort of split it in that way. But I remember, you know, you you made me re- remember this when uh, basically when Brain Hurts came out, uh, uh, Larry re released Bogota immediately, mm-hmm. um, and that almost did better than my Brain Hurts. But basically, all the money at that point it would just go into my bank account. You know, because and then I would just pay people cash. Um, but then our payment went from like, I don't know, we were making like a thousand dollars a quarter to I got a check for one hundred and sixty thousand dollars <laughs> that that I had to put in my bank. Account. <laughs> and then all of a sudden the IRS is knocking at my door <laughs> and I had to have they actually came uh, and I had to I had to meet with the IRS. We're just so you know, we were so honest about about our accounting. We were so good at it. And luckily, we had kept all the receipts from all the tours. And, you know, even the guy said, you can't possibly just use the van for just touring. And I said, I don't even drive. And I had all the receipts and gas, you know, all the gas receipts. So we walked out with a clean bill of health. But yeah, so we we, we incorporated and we started Weasels Inc. so that all the money wouldn't just go to me and make me look like I was doing something illegal. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think a young person coming into a, over a so, hundred grand, it's gotta be drugs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so since then, yeah, we, we, we ran Weasels Inc. So I had like quarterly taxes and I had a, you know, I was the accountant, but I also had to go to an accountant to figure out all the, there was so much to, you, I don't know. I don't think the average person who listens to the music knows how much goes on behind the scenes. Yeah, it's just keeping track of all of it. Well, especially a band like you guys, like you guys are really, you know, laying the groundwork that bands, you know, like us are able to kind of follow now for, you know, like the touring, the accounting, like all that stuff. Like it yeah. was trial by fire, I guess. But I think the important thing that I'm really proud of too is that even though Ben and I don't, uh, we don't get along anymore, but I still think we were some of the most integrity-driven people that I knew. Like everyone got paid what they were fairly supposed to got paid. We made we made contracts about everything, so you know I had to make sure everyone got their their fair money from every record. Mm-hmm. Uh, so everything was dealt above the board. You know, all our taxes were paid. And also, like, what a legacy you guys have of incredible songs and incredible releases. And like, you know, a band that certainly through you know your tenure in that band never sold out and like never put out a bad record. Well, I, you know, I think the two are related. There was always, there were, there were always passion projects for us. So there was no, there was never a moment to phone it in. So I, I feel like that probably had a lot to do with them being strong records. I really do feel like the work you put into something uh, is shown through the music that you put out. How did the split with Born Against come about? Of all bands, like, you know, it, it's one of my favorite releases you guys did. <laughs> uh they were we always played with them like once again in the earlier days you played with 
whoever you know was your friend and whoever booked the show. Yeah. The, to me, there was like differentiating between their band and the and our band, but we just really got along with them, and we would stay with them when they were in uh they were in New Jersey too, right? Yeah, I think the, yeah the, the apartment that we used to stay in was right over the river. I think in New Jersey there. So okay, that makes sense. Uh, we were always really close to all of them. Yeah, they would stay with us, and we'd stay with them. And I think um, Ben just got talking with, uh, once again, can you fill me in with his name? <laughs> uh, Sam McFeeders. <laughs> Sam, yeah, I love Sam. Sam's yeah. a crazy man. Yeah. Um, but they just they just got talking one night and just decided they would write songs for each other because they knew that would piss off both scenes. <laughs> Whereas to us, there was no difference between us and them, but we knew that the audiences, you know, saw the differences. Um, so that was great. That was, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. You know, it's, it's definitely, like, yeah, I love that. I love that. I love that. I love that. That CDP too, very much. Yeah. And it, I think like you said, it's like two bands that, you know, sonically don't sound anything alike, but speaks to kind of like the diversity of the underground in punk rock at that period. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, we, you know, we would, we actually probably veered more in their territory than they veered in ours. Cause you know, yeah. we would, we would step into the political arena occasionally. So that, I think the song that we did of theirs didn't really feel like it was that out of place. It was a little more wordy than I think Ben likes to be, but what's, what's it, what's it called? El, El Mazante. I can't think of the name of this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that song, oh, but yeah, it's so probably good. a little bit more wordy than, than Ben would have written, but I don't think it was so odd for us to be doing that. No, it's much more sonically fitting than I think uh, Janelle is for for them. <laughs> it has that passion and seriousness. Uh, it has everything that I like in music. Well, it's, it's and it's very much like the stuff that got you into punk and hardcore. It seems you know, like very in keeping, kind of with the uh, the spirit and sense of humor of bands like Adrenaline OD and Angry Simones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I'm sorry, I have to go, go off on a tangent, but when I was staying at, at their house once, one of them was a tattoo artist. I think it was the guitarist. Uh, and he on his refrigerator had a picture of a, a guy wanted him to tattoo on his forehead, fuck cops. <laughs> so this guy on his forehead had fuck cops. Then he told me that he went to prison and, of course, got beat, beat to death. So, wow. <laughs> so don't put fuck cops on your forehead. <laughs> no, it's, it's kind of a, 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 one that's hard to walk back from once you have it. Yeah. So anyway, whenever I think of born against, I think of that. I also think of the record by black Sabbath that has nothing to do with them. <laughs> oh, that's true. I guess like, you know, jumping ahead a little bit, but I, I kind of wanted to, to talk about this. Like what, what point did you feel like it was over for you in, in Screech and Weasel? That's a, that's a many layered question. And sometimes there's some things I don't talk about, some things I do, and we'll just see where we go with it. But, um, the, the sidetrack that I'll give you first is that the band is like a baby to me and Ben, like yeah. the mother and father. So when, you know, when you get divorced, you don't, you know, give up your baby. So even to this very day, it's, it's my band. Still. So I don't think there was ever a point where I was ever thought about leaving the band, but it did get to the point where me and Ben just couldn't work together anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, and it mostly had to do with the, uh, the corporation. 
Uh, that's basically what I quit was the corporation because the band wasn't a band at the time. Then he reformed a band, and I didn't. And I didn't know about it. He didn't inform me. And then it got ugly. Yeah, the going story is that I loved touring, and touring was sort of my thing too. I was in charge of the tours. Uh, you know, I booked all the tours. I'm a performer. So when that became less and less important to Ben, it's uh, it it became less important to me because we were together less. Uh, so I I wasn't I wasn't growing as a you know as a guitar player. And when when we would get together, it'd be frustrating because I couldn't I couldn't play as well as I should as other bands could play because they were you know touring and playing all the time. So I think he we knew we were unhappy with each other. So it just started de- decaying from there. And that was around 2000 and about not 2000 is when it started sort of sinking in that we were not meant to be together anymore. It's funny, like you said, there's so many things that you don't understand about how a band works until you're inside the band. And I think like the relationships that people have within the band, like until you're in that band, you can't really understand what those relationships are like. I agree, and that's why often I, I I wouldn't even you know a thing too is and maybe you understand more and are more willing to listen because you were in a band, but people's eyes would gloss over, and you know a lot of people would ask me questions wanting me to either side with Ben or be against Ben, and it's it's always more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm all about the grays. I'm not going to give someone like a black and white answer, so I often just give up giving answers because people aren't really interested in the truth. Did you kind of like after, you know, that whole experience, like uh, you put out that other record, the Mopes, right? Like around 99, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, that was just a a fun projects for, you know, it, it's, it still lingers on and we still play out, but it was always meant to just be a a fun. band, so it wasn't in competition with anything. No, I mean, did you like, were you finding anything to kind of fulfill this? You know, like you said, like you're a performer, you know, and like, and, and this band is your baby, obviously, but was there anything that you were kind of trying to fill that performance musical void with during that time when you guys weren't really touring? Well, I wouldn't really call it filling because once again, I was doing theater all through that. So I I became part of a company called the Neo Futurists in 96. So right after Bark Like a Dog. Um, And that company has a show called Too Much Light Mixed a Baby Go Blind that runs every weekend. Uh, actually, they're having their 30th anniversary in December 2nd. Um, so I was on stage every weekend mm-hmm. that I wasn't like on tour. You know, I did that show about 45 weekends a year for about 15 years. Wow. That's a run. You know, it's a couple of years before you do even in the blackouts. Were, the, were you playing music during that time or were you just focusing more on the theater? It's a good question. Let me think about that. <laughs> um <laughs> Well, well, 2000 was the, the House of Blues shows and 2001, and I started the band, even Blackouts, in 2000, actually right after that last show at the House of Blues, I started, uh, wrote my first solo song that I've ever written in my life, and then I started even in Blackouts. Um, so I guess I hadn't been on stage probably since, what, 96 or 97 with the band? I don't really think about that. It's kind of odd that that is almost has an empty, like a blank in my head because I don't remember not performing in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were, yeah, you're right though. There was years where we weren't performing as a band, and mm-hmm. no, I didn't like that. That's 
so I didn't really fill it with any band because the most at that point never played out. We were just we went in the studio and recorded a record because we were all from different states. So if the question is, did I fill that gap with uh, music performance? No, I didn't. Like, yeah, like, it, is is it something that, you know, like, obviously you missed and, and obviously you're still, you know, playing music in some capacity, but is it like, like, I guess what I'm getting at, like, do you feel like Screeching Weasel is the band? Like, I've always felt that with Fucked Up. Like, if I stop doing music tomorrow, I'm like, I'm done. Like, I'm, 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 I've done my band. Like, did you feel that with Screeching Weasel? Like, would you have been content if that was just, like, the legacy? I kind of feel that's what you were maybe getting at. Um... At that time, I I was I always saw myself as a one band man. I didn't I didn't really have any. Uh, since I had the theater going, I I wasn't I didn't mind being the second fiddle, you know, in a band. It was kind of a it was good. I think it was good for me and Ben, you know, because mm-hmm. he needed the star, you know, he needed to be a, the 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 one of where all the attention was, the spotlight was on, and and I didn't. So it worked pretty well. Yeah, um, you so always during that so. So I never was looking for another band until it became solidified in that show in 2001 that there was absolutely not going to be any way that uh, Weasel at that time were going to be on stage again, is what Ben gave me the impression. So that's why I'd start a band. And of course, I started something that was purposely extremely different because that's what we did as Weasel when we started. So I feel like I was continuing that sort of rebellion. <laughs> um, well, I I could talk to you forever John, but I've kept you for long <laughs> enough tonight. Um, would you come back at some point in the future and do a second episode with me? Damien, I would talk to you whenever you want. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show I, and letting me scratch all these super nerdy itches of mine. <laughs> Not a problem at all. I was really happy that uh, when I reached out to you guys that you were excited about it because a friend of mine had told you about the told me about your podcast and I was like, oh, well, maybe they'll have me on. Oh, no. So dude, I thank like, you. Oh no! You you are helping us. My brother and I. This has been like a a twenty some odd year plus a plus plus. I'm I'm I wish I could say just twenty year obsession um, for us. So yeah, no, amazing that I get to talk to you finally. Well, I'm, well, thank you for having me on, Damien. And you you can call me anytime. Thank you, John, for coming on the show. Or Jughead, maybe. No, John, uh, for coming on the show. We will have a part two in the future. There's more stuff I'd love to talk to him about and stuff. But, oh, my gosh. Getting a nerd out about those records. You know, finding out about that unreleased split. Oh, this is the stuff I live for doing this podcast. And this is the kind of stuff we're going to dive into deep with Turnout of Punk footnotes uh, coming out later on this week with my friend and your friend too, Chris O'Toole. But before we get any further, we got to go on to the uh, the other part of our double feature this week, which is a chance that I had in New York at the House of Vans to sit down and chat with two icons from different coasts, but two you know giants in their respective worlds, Craig Sitari and Fletcher. Uh, This is a a monster of an episode. Thank you so much to Chuck for finding this. Thank you to to Brooke and everyone at Vans for having me out there again to to do this and get to do this kind of stuff because, as you'll hear, 
I was pretty excited to do this, but also it was my last time at the House of Vans. So there was a, a sense of melancholy to the whole thing because I had to say goodbye to one of my favorite venues, you know? Who would think that a venue that put on free shows sponsored by a shoe company would be something so special? But, like, yeah, it was. It was such a cool space to go and see shows and hang out. And I got to see a bunch of different stuff over the years. And it was awesome. It was a really cool place. So this is kind of a fitting send-off to that great venue um, because I get to interview two greats, you know, two people that are two turn out a punk I don't know, like top 20 people that I've wanted to have on this show. And we get to do it now together. So sit back and relax again for the second part of this week's episode. Here are Craig and Fletcher. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special live interview here from the House of Vans in Brooklyn, New York. I have, been, I have been looking forward to this day all summer. I left my wife and children at home, and I came down here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna mosh for sick of it all. Pardon me? I, it was a secret. I had to keep it a secret. They swore me to secrecy, sir. Believe me. And here's the other secret. Today, we're gonna be interviewing a lot of really cool people. Starting off with two people that I have dreamed about having the chance to interview for this podcast that I do, Turn Out a Punk, for a very long time. Two people that intimidate the shit out of me and have for, for years, years and years. Please welcome to the stage, Craig from Sick of It All and Fletcher from Pennywise! Randy was back there too, but now you've offended him, so he's not coming. He's not going to come? No. Randy! Randy, get over here. All right. Well, as I was telling you guys earlier, there's a question I've asked both of you for years. Craig, I think I've asked it for you now. This is the, uh, the 20th anniversary of me asking you this question. When, when will the Straight Ahead reissue finally come out? I don't know. I, uh... I have material that was never released, but, um, you know, I, Sounds like that was then, answer. this is now. I just never bothered to do it. You understand what I'm saying? I know. It's you almost should... like the one band left in, where, where in the past where it was, you know what I mean? So I'm thinking maybe I just leave it there, but sometimes I think about doing it, but I just haven't. It's almost like every New York guy has that band in their past that they're like, no, this one's going to stay the Lost a, Relic. I got a demo that we recorded of a bunch of songs that we never really played and a few songs we did play and uh, most of it is with me singing instead of Tommy oh really at the time he, yeah at the time he sang and it didn't come out good so I sang and we just left it so it's like a, a like a demo nobody ever nobody's ever heard it not yeah. one person except for myself Danny Wilker and Armand and Rob you know the guys in the band they heard it that's it well thanks for being so selfish Craig uh, thank you <laughs> <laughs> maybe one day speaking of selfish Fletcher a question I've been asking yourself for years Con 800. If you have not heard of this band, this is like the Rosetta Stone for understanding where California punk went. I only know them because of a compilation where I think 
Fish Sticks did a cover of a song. I believe that's correct. That Theologian put out with yep. Great God Pan fanzine and yep. YouTube. But once again, why are you holding this back from us? I don't know. <laughs> I, it's, it's, same shit, right? It's, uh, yeah, it's the same shit. I don't know. I've been busy. <laughs> we, I told you, though. I told you we did the first reunion show. It's, it was 37 years without playing a show. And uh, that was like two months ago, and it was pretty off the hook. So there's talk about maybe re-releasing. Well, it never got released. It's a demo tape. Like, like he mm-hmm. said, it's like it's an incomplete like youngster tape where you didn't know what you were doing in the studio on a four-track. But that's the beauty of it. It sounds like shit, but you've heard it, so... Well, what, was the tape ever actually released? Like, did you make covers for it or anything, or just no, to pass it around? No, we never even, like, we just made some cassettes and gave them to our friends. Like, we never even put a single out or anything. So I don't know who bootlegged that LP, but it's, it's out there. I don't even have it. I pray to God you never find like, that, man. Someone had to, like, screen or whatever, send me the YouTube link so I could learn the songs the other day. But it's, it's pretty fun, and it was, it was pretty fun the other night. So maybe, maybe we'll have to do an East Coast, West Coast split, split, split. and then do a tour together. Yeah, yeah. awesome. Oh, God! That's a good idea. <laughs> well, I do this podcast called Turn It a Punk, and every episode I start it the same way with all the guests. And given that you two gentlemen are from very different scenes, I'm going to have to ask it as separate questions. But I guess I'll start. Craig, how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? It's hard to say exactly when I first came across it, but really, my brother's friend, Danny Lilker, mm-hmm. he... Uh, a legend. Yeah, he, he's a, a friend of my brother's. He's big in, like, the crossover scene. So he went to high school with my brother. It was probably 1980, and uh, he was like, hey, kid, you know, you like metal? You like, like punk rock, hardcore? I was like, I, I like Aerosmith and Black Sabbath, <laughs> you know? So he's like, you know, check this out. And he gave me, like, uh, play me The Exploited, Played me Discharge, like just right in the very beginning, and uh, some new wave of British heavy metal. And I was like, this is great, this is great. And hey, you, you play any instruments? No. Your brother's gonna play bass, so maybe I'll teach you too. I was like, okay, it was like 1980. Brought a bass over my house. I, my brother didn't care because he wanted to chase girls and like, get stoned. Yeah. And I just played every single day for about two years, and then I started playing shows. So I just immediately just played bass and you know, every seven inch I could get my hand on. You know, every demo I could get my hands on, started trading tapes with people all over the joint, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was like a fire was lit immediately. I was a little kid, you know what I mean? And from there on, it was just like, never stopped. What was the first, like, I guess, New York hardcore record you heard then? Or uh, New York punk record, I guess, at that point even, right? Probably Bad Brains Pay to Come. Yeah. You know, which yeah. is, at the time, D.C., but still. New York enough. You know, and like, for, out of New York stuff, probably uh, also, like, if you want to talk about straight New York, would be like, uh, you know, Agnostic Front United Blood 7-inch when it first came out. That was a big one for me. Pretty good, you know? pretty good starter pack. And later on playing with them was <laughs> yeah. like, to me, I was like, whoa. Oh, like I got to get, you told me the first st- bands I got into, you know what I mean? Well, I was going to ask you, and maybe we should just ask it now. You, years ago, I don't know if you want to talk about it, but you told me a crazy story about what happened after you played a show in Montreal with Agnostic Front where Roger wouldn't give you the bed. Oh, no, that was in Detroit, man. <laughs> oh, it was Detroit, okay. I don't want to talk okay, about that. Okay, no problem. <laughs> No problem. Understood. Let's just Roger's say that Roger, Roger won that exchange <laughs> in a very underhanded manner. Uh, moving on very quickly then. Fletcher, how about yourself? When was the first time you ever came across the genre? Oh, man. Uh, I think it was like 78-ish. There's uh, some band called The Last. Yes. Like, okay, so the Nolte Brothers. Sunset Bomber. <laughs> right. So the younger brother who wasn't in the band, like those guys were 
cranking like Sex Pistols, and I had no idea. I'm like 77, maybe. It was like cassette tape. C- kind of liked it, but wasn't really like that into it. Wasn't feeling it for some reason as much as I should have now, <laughs> as I do now. But uh, that kind of got me rolling, and then it was, you know, I mean, Hermosa Beach. So you had yeah. Nervous Breakdown, you know, EP, Keith Morris, Circle Jerks, all that stuff. Descendants was right. In, I mean, Descendants was like 78, I think. So all that stuff was like literally in my backyard, like backyard parties carrying their gear in and all that shit. And so then it was just Dead Kennedys, TSOL, blah, 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 you know, Ramones, everything. So it was, I mean, the band that really is, it's crazy because you just said that the, the, the song that changed my perception of everything and just made me want to be in a band was Pay to Come. Bad Brains, mm-hmm. played by Rodney on the Rock off the demo tape in like 1980 and a half or something, I guess. I don't even know. Look it up. It's awesome but, how Rodney was on to that that quickly. He was on to everything. I mean, he, he was playing all kinds of shit. I mean, he broke so many bands that wound... I mean, his little show, you know, every Sunday night it was like, I think it was 10 to 2 or something like that, mm-hmm. or little transistor radio under my pillow because my dad would fucking kick the shit out of me for anything punk rock related. You bring a dead kid and he's record home to your parents, you know? Mm-hmm. They're, not, they're not feeling it. So uh, that, that was pretty, pretty cool. And Rodney had a lot of really cool shit that wound up, you know, climbing and getting bigger and bigger. So kind of that, that whole Hermosa Beach scene. And I just was right in the middle of it. The last are kind of a band that really doesn't get the credit they deserve, I think. Like, they did that self-release. They taught Black Flag how to release records, right? Like, they had the first... They were, one. like, the godfathers of punk rock in the South Bay, basically. Mm-hmm. And... No one really knows who they are. I mean, obviously, people that are into deep into the music scene know, but um, yeah, they, they, were, they were doing it. I never saw them play. I, when I was younger, I saw them play when I was older, but yeah, they, they basically paved the way for all that shit, so mm-hmm. it was pretty, pretty rad. I guess, like, you know, we could go so many places with each of you, but I want to kind of find out, when did the first meeting between you two happen? When did I first meet you? You know, I remember the first time oh, I met him. Hey, but you don't remember. But go ahead. I, we, we were playing a show in Southern California, and this guy was, uh, I think, with Jim in the back, drunk. And I was like, who Probably the fuck? drunk for sure. I was like, yo, who, who the fuck? Is? And he was going wild, breaking shit. And I was like, what the fuck's with this big guy? He's like kind of violent. I was like, yo, let's, let's make sure like that nothing crazy happens. So we were kind of like looking like, like kind of like almost gathering the forces like how are we going to deal with this fucking giant bear and then he's like hey what's up buddy and we I was like oh what's up man and I was like oh he's actually really cool but yeah initially it was pretty terrifying yeah I was breaking walls drunk, drunk going wild <laughs> breaker my dad taught me how to get drunk and break shit so I carried still carrying that tradition on a little I, bit I've witnessed but, that tradition is that what yeah, you remember so, oh yeah yeah you oh shit I saw, that's I saw, right Australia oh Australia you're going to go there probably well yeah. You can go there if you want. That is, the, I've, I've seen a lot of crazy things in my life, Fletcher. Ugh. But you on stage for the Bronx was one of the wildest things I've ever this seen. This guy got fucked up stories for real. For real, like not regular stuff. Not you know, you think I, your friends are crazy, and I'm a I'm a New York hardcore guy from way back. This guy's really crazy. A, a, a Cro-Mag is telling you he's that crazy. he's got yeah. crazy stories. So. Crazy. Dude, I, um, I was an AF for years. This guy's got <laughs> crazy <laughs> stories. That was the last, uh, the last show of the tour, right? Yeah, it was the last show of the tour. And I remember like, you guys were rolling through the, the, lo- or the hotel. I mean, yeah. the fucking airport. The airport, right? It was, well, you got to tell what happened first before. Yeah. Did we tell it? You go ahead. Okay. I don't so remember. we're standing. <laughs> Just we, kidding. We had been, 
our, we were on this giant festival tour together, all of our bands, um, and we were playing. It was the last show of the tour of Brisbane, I believe, and they divided our the stage that I, we had been on with the Bronx into two stages. So the Bronx were on one end of the field, and we were on the other field. And all of a sudden, we hear over the radio, the lead singer of the Bronx has been stabbed, and we're like, "What?" Our friend don't Matt, dunk it. Hold on. Don't worry. And I'm like, "What? What?" And they're like, "You guys, go on and play. Go on." And we're like, "We're not playing if our friend just got stabbed." And they're like, no, it wasn't Matt. It was someone else. It was someone else. It was me. It was Fletcher. <laughs> and I stabbed myself. So can't really get in trouble for that shit. 19 times is what I think you told me. I don't know about that. but You guys know about the elephant? No, oh. no elephant. All right, we'll keep it quiet. But the, but the, like, I wound up... Fought two elephants. The sto- I mean, the deal was, like, I, I, the Bronx, I loved the Bronx, and I wanted to make sure that they left a mark on that festival, because yeah. they never just, you know, they needed more love from the press. So I was like, <laughs> how, how can I get the fucking press's attention? I'll just break a beer bottle and take my shirt off and just slice myself up. So it, <laughs> it was pretty ugly. It was like 80 stitches, and there was a lot of blood. A lot and, of blood. Uh, a lot of blood. But I couldn't see it because it was like below the fat line, you know? It's like, <laughs> right, 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 right there. That's part of it. It, it. And then the next day, I went up to you in the airport and I said, I was, How are you doing? And you said, I'm okay. I'm like, You got to fly back to LA right now. And you're like, I got, I got, uh, I forget what you, an Ambien. And you're like, I'll be fine. Probably Xanax or something. A Xanax. No, I got a Xanax. I'll be fine. <laughs> The, the the chick you probably don't know this part of the story. So they took they wound up. I was like back at the at the uh, dressing room drinking, you know, making white Russians. And well, because that's the thing, you didn't go to the hospital immediately. Yeah, yeah, no, I didn't. They're like, you got to go to the hospital. I'm like, fuck that, take me to the booze. So I was just <laughs> back there, like my dicky shorts were tan, but they turned red. They were completely red. So I was drinking, and then like finally forced me to get in the ambulance. So I went to the hospital, and then they said. Uh, like, you got to get stitches. You can't get on a plane because you swell up when you get on a plane. You're going to be infected and blah, blah. I go, it's a longer story, but I basically told the doctor I only get stitches if you do it without, uh, like, anesthetic. No. Novocaine. She's like, are you fucking serious? She thought I was already crazy, obviously. Because I told her that I did it myself. And I'm like, no, I'm just a cutter and a burner. Like, I'm not, I'm not trying to kill myself. I just have fun doing it. I've been doing it since I was 14. It's just punk rock. And she's like, I... Get a fucking psych evaluation down here right now. I'm like, no. I'm telling you, I'm happy. I'm good right now. I want to get a hamburger. So, so she started stitching me up with no... She, she thought that would be good. So she started stitching me up. And I'm like, oh my God, that feels so good. Can I get another one? And she, she got really mad. So I let, all, I let like six interns practice stitching me up. Like gave me like 80 stitches. I was drunk enough. I mean, it hurt. Like up in here, it hurt pretty bad. But shit, it, it worked out. I made it home. Now I just tell people I got a new liver so I can drink more. Look at the shock on his face. <laughs> oh, my God. And, they, and the Bronx got all the press. They said the best show of the day was the Bronx show. So it fucking worked. But some fucking asshole called me, like, fat, like, three different ways. But he, he said portly and then blah, blah, blah. And he goes, he broke a puddle and he slashed at his marshmallowy figure. I was like... You know what? That's so good that I probably won't knock your teeth out when I catch you fucking slipping. But, yeah, marshmallow figure. I mean, you know about that shit. Yeah. 100%. Right with you, right with you. Yeah. Fuck it. Free beer. marshmallow That's another person we're going to add to the list that we pray Fletcher never catches. <laughs> I was going to say, both you gentlemen 
when I introduced you, I said, like, you know, fairly intimidating presences in your respective scenes. Uh, yo, Craig, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, over boxer, the years, definitely. Remember? But who... I can play the bass pretty well. Absolutely. And, and uh, you can hold your own. I've seen it. I've seen it. But uh, that's the man right there. <laughs> <laughs> that's the champ in the audience. <laughs> Go ahead. Who, who do you... Who, to you guys, was intimidating people when you were growing up? Because you grew up in both, both pretty intense scenes. John Bloodclot? Absolutely. Who's my buddy now, but yeah. he was like the meanest dude. Even though he's my boy, he would be like, I'd be like, hey, what's up? He'd be like, yo. And he just never smiled. I was like, what's with this dude? He's like the most unfriendly guy ever. And then I see him like knock a couple people out. I'm like, this dude, meanwhile, he's my buddy. But you yeah, know, you don't really know what you're getting. You know yep. what I mean? Yep, absolutely. How about for you? Pretty much anyone running around was in the suicidal gang. Yeah. <laughs> Back in those yeah. days, it was pretty scary. Uh, John Macias from Circle One Circle was one, scary yeah. as fuck. I was like 14, you know, so these guys were 14, 15. These dudes were like 20-year-old maniacs. Rollins kind of scared me. It's kind of strange. Like, he had some weird intensity that... I mean, I, went, I saw Black Flag's first show with Rollins in Cali. I know he did something back here, but, like, mm -hmm. I was, like, frying on mushrooms. I think I was 16 or something, and he scared the shit out of me. He had a weird, like, face body thing you've seen it and yep. it just was like uh, other people weren't that intense on the west coast they were but he just had a little extra notch of like he actually attacked me he fucking beat me up at a, in a party really uh-huh um i wouldn't not that bad like he he fucking he would have no, been was, like at your knees it, it swinging was, up it might have no no I, I was i was a skinny kid back in the day but like he i was sitting on the bar and it was either the first or second show is it, it was like subhumans from canada descendants and flag playing, they played like for an hour and a half. And <laughs> my buddies pushed, my buddies were crazy too. They fucking pushed Henry over Chuck's base amp. He put a hole in the drywall in this kitchen and he came back and for some reason he thought I did it. And he's like, it's all my imagination. Got a gun on my back. He starts beating me in the face with the 57. He got right up. It's not mine, my bam, bam. And I was on mushrooms. I was like, I don't want, I don't want any part of this shit. I like rolled off in the trip. I rolled off into the kitchen sink, fucking kicked out the fucking window. Or rolled off the oven, kicked out the window, and fucking jumped out in the backyard. I was like, I'm gonna take a chill pill for a second here. So, yeah, he was he was kind of scary. Favorite uh, favorite singer for Black Flag? I'm going with Keith. Fucking a Keith Morris right here. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. He, he drew that shit on me on their little reunion tour. So. I tattooed it on my arm a couple weeks ago, months ago. I don't know. Um. <laughs> Given that both of you guys are from, you know, obviously legendary bands in their own right, but also part of these like sort of elusive, kind of sought after lost bands as well, who were bands from your scenes that you just feel never got the credit or still don't get the due that they deserve? Like we talked about the last, but like from New York, there, there there's a band from New Jersey called Mental Abuse. Absolutely, that I really Soft liked. Woman. Yeah, I really liked. They were they were like a, a you know, pre-metal infusion punk hardcore mm -hmm. band from New Jersey. I used to play with them. Back in like 84 and 85, they were my friends. They put out an album called Streets of Filth, which I think is great. Adrenaline Overdose yeah. was another great band. Yeah. You know, I, I like back then, especially I like fast punk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I liked it to rip, you know what I mean? So that was another band I thought was kind of unsung and, and, and really good. What were mental abuse like? As a matter of fact, I got, they're not unsung, but I got my Reagan youth shirt tonight. I'm probably going to wear it because I'm all getting gassed up from this little <laughs> conversation. <laughs> with my old school Reagan youth shirt. What, uh, like, what was mental abuse like live? Like, what kind of show did they play? They were like, like, it was like, you know, like you took eight Valiums. <laughs> you know what I mean? They were slow and drippy, but they were good. You know what I mean? It was like broke down punk. You know what I mean? Yeah. Absolutely. Good band. Uh, Fletcher, how about you? What are some bands? Um, I mean, I don't know. It seems like a lot of the bands 
that they were they were recognized in like early '80s, but then they broke up, and then people don't even talk about them anymore. Like wasted youth, mm-hmm. wasted from youth California. Rule. I mean mm-hmm. that Love that shit youth. was just off the hook. I mean. It's fucking insanely good. Um, Do you think it's because they put out that metal stuff afterwards and people yeah, like... It, a lot of bands did that. A lot of yeah. bands like weren't getting paid and then they tried to switch it up to this little little bit of weird like commercial shit. We won't name all the bands that did that, but I think a lot of people <laughs> fell off and then when punk rock came back, they, they weren't around because none of it worked for them. They didn't make a living, but I still talked to like Alan and shit and Wasted Youth was one of those bands like I saw their first show as Wasted Youth. It was fucking insane and they were just really good. The Chiefs, were another really yeah. good band, The Stains, out yeah. of East LA with Rudy. Mom and Dad, I'm sick and crazy. What about Target of Demand? Did you ever see that band? And um, I, I'm sure I was in the room on Angel Dust or something, <laughs> but I definitely went to some of the shows. I just don't remember that portion of it. <laughs> totally understood. Uh, both you guys are in bands that kind of kept it, you know, going during like leaner years for this music before like everything blew up again in the 90s and you know there were a lot of kids going on. Um, I guess starting with you, Fletcher, what was it like? 87, you guys put out 87, the first seven inch comes 87, out? 87, 88, 88. Yeah, something like that. What was this? What was it like at that point? Like it seems like, you know, apart from bad religion, like there's not too many LA bands. Like there's like the, inf- the power violence stuff, which like a theologian would kind of be involved with a little bit, but it just died. I mean, like it, it was hard to get shows out there because. The 80s were littered with, like, riots, you know, which were cool as fuck, like, you know. <laughs> Mendiola's Ballroom f- exploited for a show. Bards Apollo. There was, you know, Ram- uh, was it Ramones in Hollywood? There was some big-ass fucking riots. I mean, like, Fender 100. was always crazy. Fenders was fucking That was bloodbath. just fucking scary. That was scary. sick. I go down to mid-80s. Scary. They had a bunch of, like, Samoan crip gangsters fucking doing security. Dudes would get knifed and they, up and the cops would wait outside until they could really yeah. come in and take the bloody guy out because they were Dude, like scared. Like, you didn't have to even be scared up. of the punkers. You had to be scared of the rival gangs coming in trying to kill those dudes. Like ro- I saw dudes rolling in with sawed off shotguns like yep. with, a, with the beer in my Different. hand. New York like was small. It was one on one. That was some crazy shit. But yeah, that, fucking insane. There was just so much shit going on that it, it Punk rock became unsafe, and there was no venues, and bands just you know couldn't make a living, and they just started breaking up. And so, we were sitting around. I was like, we need to do something on Friday nights. So we started Pennywise because there was no more shows to go to. So we just started playing backyard parties, and it just escalated up. So it was cool to be part of that, and then Bad Religion. I mean, just to be doing something. Mm-hmm. But then Bad Religion released that Suffer LP, and we were just like, holy fuck! I mean, I mean, I did my first stage dive at a Bad Religion, Bad Brains show in at the Ukrainian Cultural Center, you know, when I was a youngster, but that record was like the change, the game changer, because it was so good, and I think so many people connected, and Brett had a label, and we were just like, we, we did a, KXLU started playing our single off, off Theologian, mm-hmm. we did an interview, they're like, what's your goals? We're like, we want to be on Epitaph, and we want the legendary Starbolt to produce it, we didn't even know it was fucking Brett Gerowitz. Yeah. Who's <laughs> in yeah, and so it was an Oz harmonies, 20-part harmonies. Give us some of those. So anyways, we because uh, we love Bad Religion, and we already kind of had that vibe going. Like Everyone's like, you're Bad Religion ripoff. Well, we're everybody ripoff, but you know, you, you're a product of your environment, right? So I'm, I'm more minor threat than, than I am Bad Religion, personally, mm-hmm. guitar-wise. But yeah, so he got us a, a fucking deal with, he got us an interview with Brett, and and that was it, you know. He signed us, and then it was like, oh, we're part of this thing. What are we going to sell? You might, you're going to sell like two thousand records. We were like, are you fucking shitting me? Two thousand? Are you serious? <laughs> like four hundred thousand records later, you know, 
Like the, it was, it just changed. Everything changed. And was Theologian Records your guys' label? It was Mark Theodore, who I grew up surfing with and shit. Okay. He had he had this record store called Alternative Groove, and he was punker. Like he was a reserved punker. You never caught him in the pit. He'd yeah. be in the back, like sipping a martini or some shit. But <laughs> he like he was into music, and I'm like, hey, we we put out this put out this record for us. He's like, oh, I don't know, dude. And I'm like, basically, like you're putting out this record. And so he paid for the recording, and we recorded at Radio Tokyo, like a spot where Descendants recorded back in the day and shit, a little house in Venice. And um, yeah, he put it, we made 500 copies, glued the, uh, the shit together. <laughs> put them on speaker. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> glued, glued the covers yeah, together, and that was it. What's up, Jack? Okay, what was that, the rooster? That's the rooster. <laughs> Yo, I'm live on a podcast. What's up? Say what's up. What, what podcast? It's Damien from Fucked Up's podcast. John, what's up, buddy? Oh, what's happening? No much, man. Random phone call. Light, light it up or I got to hang up. I'm in the middle of it. <laughs> no, no, Give me something good. Come on. Live on air. Let's go. Yo. The biggest documentary series is coming on Netflix. It's called Dirty to Life. Alright, alright. You plugged it. Oh, alright, brother. Listen, I'm gonna go. Mike DeJean's here. He says, what's up? I, I got a split. I'm live on air. I'll talk to you later, brother. It's like a WWE run-in right there. Right away, he plugs. Right away. How much time? Let me plug it. <laughs> So you Random guys, phone call. You guys hand-colored all those first seven inches, right? Like the first press. We, we printed, everybody had a print shop, so we printed them, and then we had like little dot cutout lines. So we sat there with scissors and fucking cut them out, folded them, <laughs> yeah. and Elmer's glued that yeah, shit together. So the first 500 of them were, were done like that, like in my living room, listening to like, I don't know, Suffer probably. What, I don't know. That, the straight ahead 12-inch, one of the coolest aesthetic records ever. Um, Iris was that white disco sleeves, but it's white disco sleeves. But that sticker, the sticker looks awesome. And how many bands have ripped that off, Craig? Since yeah, but that was just a matter of okay, we can get these white disco sleeves cheap, and let's make some stickers. But that's you like know what I'm that, saying that's the best thing about punk, right? Like that that necessity easy. makes an aesthetic, right? Yeah, quick and easy, as as fast as we could we could get it done. Just boom, put a sticker on it. And was Iris you guys? Iris was actually Dwayne from some records. Oh, it's Dwayne, Dwayne Rossingle. Some. Yeah, it was his label. So he financed it from his store, Some Records. Yeah. Any you guys remember Some Records? It was a little record store down by CBGB's in a basement. It was a guy named Dwayne. Sold demo tapes for all the New York hardcore bands in like the, the early and mid 80s. Uh, probably from like 84, 3 to like 87, 88. He was selling demo tapes and in 7 inches. So he had this little store. And when you go to CBGB's, you'd go to Dwayne's shop and hang out and, uh, you know, buy somebody's demo tape for two bucks you know what i mean it was like a he had like a little store with like a couple of little uh tables laid out old style spot what, what? yeah and so he put he did a label and the first release he did was it was called i risk because he's like well we might not get the money back because i'm gonna put like a little <laughs> bit of money into this you know and it's all demos at that point pretty much so he's like i risk and he did straight ahead 
the 12-inch as his first release. And that risk paid off in dividends. Well, I don't know how much it paid off financially, but it's a cool thing. It's <laughs> well, a good, if you, you kept know. some, it would have. Yeah. I got, I got, like I said, I got, 10, I got 12, 15 of them. I'm all the Zadok unopened, just sitting there. You've been telling me that for the I past know. 15 years, Craig, and I've asked you every single time I've seen you. It doesn't me mean shit me to me. One. I just have them sitting there in the attic. Everybody else is like, oh, you got those? I'm like, yeah, they're sitting in a box. So I don't. Really I just found our, our covers, like, uh, found a batch of covers that are, what I don't know how many years that is 30 years old like unfolded and a couple <laughs> folded ones and then I'm like well I should probably put these in a safer place I'm gonna give you guys my, I'm gonna give you guys my address when we're finished and if you just want to send packages I'm not gonna say yeah. I think I have the 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 layout for the first Warzone seven inch also because, because Ray put that out Raymond. and uh you know I was in Utah today at the time so I'm pretty I'm not sure but I'm pretty sure I have the cutouts there were a couple of like test cutouts to set it up and I think one of those is in my mother's attic as well do you have a lion sleeve of the Warzone 7 inch there's like apparently there's like some that were done with a lion on the cover a John Omen lion yeah I don't know exactly what it is I'd have to he look one. I'd have to go in my oh. mother's attic and see what's what I'm just saying if there's any kicking around Mom's attic's got some serious stuff in it <laughs> like old hardcore stuff you know what I mean like I'm just like I put stuff up there in like the mid 80s and I haven't looked at it since yo coming soon Tons to Netflix stuff. a 30 part series of just me going through Craig's mom's attic Looking for cool shit. Just playing records. A lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. Um, it's, it's, it's like, it's amazing though. Like, you know, we're talking about, yeah, obviously, because you guys have had legendary careers since these little bands, but it's, it's how many things you guys did, right? Like, obviously, you know, gone on to do huge things in music, but you also had these bands that, that still mean so much to people, even bands that are unheard. The real deal is this music is real music by people talking about life. You know what I mean? So, like, it, it doesn't get to be like Beyonce big. It's not all, you know, tinsel and, and, and flash, but this is real music by real people, so people dig it, and that's why it's lasted so long. Cause mm -hmm. it's, it's, it took a while to, like, yeah. rear its head to, like, you know, obviously the mainstream, which kind of sucks, but, like, the overall, like, oh, this is incredible. It's not just a bunch of dumb drunks fucking screaming and shit and, and unintelligible lyrics, like... People started realizing this is real. The message is real. Mm -hmm. People that get into fucking Beyonce and shit, like they're in it for a minute, right? And then they're just like, "This is all fake smoke and mirrors bullshit." And no one's really singing. And then someone else is writing the songs, and they drop off. But like our fans, that were lucky enough to get into it, like when they're youngsters or whatever, then twenty-five years. There you go. Then, then you know, they it's become a lifestyle because we usually were like spitting the truth about stuff and. It's easy to, if you use your brain to like jump on that and be like, this isn't a song about fucking or taking drugs or beating bitches or something stupid. Like this is real life and that's why I think we fucking Damn straight. To stay sitting here right now. That mm -hmm. Bad Brains Roar cassette, you read the lyrics to that? It's prophetic for what's occurring today. Yeah. HR was telling you the future of the world and what's gonna happen because he understood politics and the direction it was gonna take people with all that greed. Yeah. I look at that and that's prophetic that record and to me that's the greatest single release in the history of punk rock is a bad range roar cassette yep. musically and lyrically i don't think anything equals that mm -hmm. and it's amazing so, how sorry go on i agree it's, it's amazing how all these punk singers you know all these people that were dismissed in their time and no one listened to them it's like those were the prophets because they were laying straight. it straight they could see way into the future about what was coming you know, and, and you guys too. You know, both of you guys have played in bands that have lyrics that are kind of saying about what's going on at the time, and now we can't avoid but seeing what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I say it every night, like we're playing a song that's 20 years old that Jim wrote, and I'm just like, why is this song 
so as relevant as it is today as it was 20 years ago like we're trying to fix shit this is trying to make the world better the damn truth. but it's like you know it's still there and it's it's still happening so i mean that's why i think people that are real that don't like all the fake shit and all the all the bling bling can get get down with that music and be like this is my bible and there's so many bands in our scene that are doing good shit saying good shit that you if you're smart i think you can't fucking deny it period mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um I kind of missed asking you, but um, you know, going back to those, obviously New York was different, right? Like things never died here, but like going around, they got messed up. For got, a while. got messed up, yeah. But like, but, but I mean, like going around on tour on that Warp tour or scratch the surface, like when you're kind of like, because I think you guys really did like a large part in bringing, you know, faster hardcore back to a lot of places where the kids hadn't heard that. What was it like playing to those audiences at that time? Like, could you see that was kind of something that was happening? You know, it was weird. Like, when Scratch the Service came out, like, we were on a major label and we had big distribution all over the world and, like, you go to Japan in the middle of that main street in Tokyo where you cross, there's a giant picture of us. And I'm like, <laughs> how the hell am I? That's me on that? Like, what the, what the fuck's going on? And it's just like, wow, that's weird. I guess there's some advertising behind this. And you go to these places and the shows are big and you're like, yo, there's a lot of people. Like, we're in this big magazine. Like, why are these people writing about us? Like, this is like some, some regular music shit. They don't look at us. They hate us. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? We're like not real to them or whatever. And uh, it was some weird time where it got accepted. You know what I mean? It's just a, a weird thing. To me, though, at the time, it was like I'm playing shows and people are showing up. And I'm like, yeah, this is cool. But looking back, it was definitely a turning point. But at the time, it was just, oh, there's like 900 people here. It's a Tuesday night in Oshkosh. That's weird. Why are so many people here? There should be like 150. Mm-hmm. But it, it was just a time where it blew up. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just a weird thing I can't really explain, but uh, I guess it's a good thing. I guess they tried to make hardcore and punk become like a popular thing. You know what I mean? The mainstream jumped on it like, oh, like maybe we could make this into something popular. And uh, it did money off you. It didn't really stick but though, did it? It stuck a little. It, it, a little bit. Now we're kind of back to the underground in yeah. a in a weird way. Like we're st- it's still like commercial, and the people are still making money and shit, but. It's definitely had that little peak with Offspring, Green Day, all that business, and we were kind of simmering below the surface, you know, riding the coattails, I guess. We weren't trying to. We were just riding them. But then that kind of faded off, and I think now we're back to, like, the real people that appreciate this kind of music coming to shows like this. I'm sick of all Pennywise, all you guys out here. Like, you know, the real motherfuckers. And not, not, you know, not to disrespect, like, Green Day or Offspring or anything. Like, they're doing... Their, their audience is different. I've been to a couple shows. <laughs> well, yeah, what was it Played like? Because Offspring would have been a band that, you know, like on the Nemesis days would have been opening for you. What was it like all of a sudden? They were. You're like, this band? We were listening to Offspring's demo of, of uh, Keep It Separated in that record, and they were opening for us. We were in New York, as a matter of fact. We played Seabees with them. They opened for us at Seabees. <laughs> and we, they were making like 250 bucks a night, and they are like, Brett says this is going to be on the radio. We're like, yeah, right. Came home like three yeah, months okay. later, like twenty million records later. Is this crazy? And I mean, they, I mean, we still play with them. They're still they're still cool dudes and everything. But like, you know, we'll play and our crowd will do this, and then they'll play and the crowd will do, you know, get the lighters out and bounce around and shit. And our people will be back at the bar. I remember so. playing with Green Day a festival in Europe, a tiny little like fucked up homegrown festival. And Green Day plays like right before us or maybe right after us. I don't know. 
But I'm like, oh, these guys are good. And then I go home and their videos like on TV. I'm like, oh yeah, these are the guys we played with, and they become the biggest band in the world. I'm like, how the fuck did that happen? Yeah, they're like a, you know, they're <laughs> like a. I mean, they're a pop band, but they had, they had catchy songs. Yep. But they're a punk band too. It kind of was weird to me. You know what I mean? Someone I'm like, just what grabbed f- it and what the fuck r- happened? The money machine got a hold of it. You know? Yeah, good, good catchy songs though. So that, yeah. that's, that's and, a. And it's almost like you need something like that to spurn on the next generation, right? Like you, in the post Sex Pistols clash era you had like a bunch of bands start up and in the post green day offspring era you almost had a bunch of bands start up as but the, the bummer is now it's getting harder and harder for younger bands to make a mark because yeah. there's no labels looking to sign you you got to just develop your own instagram facebook shit and you got to go out there and work your ass off to like get to the next level but you're not going to get a fifty thousand dollar advance to make your record you know you're not going to get a tour kill a tour the street off the big takeover it's just punk rock coming to coming to light yeah, in the modern age. You know what I mean? They're shutting it down. They're breaking it down. Less power for the people. This is like the political it's end back, of it. Same shit the Bad Brains the talked rebirth, about back the in the roll tape. It's the truth, man. Got to go out there and work again. Yeah. So that's how you make it, and that's how it started. So I guess it's like full circle in a way, you know? We're, we're grandfathered in because we're old fuckers. <laughs> we put in some work, so. Well, yeah. I owe you both a huge thank you for inspiring me on my path. So thank you both. You know, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having us. You. You're, you're an example. Uh, will you guys come back for a part two separately at some point over the phone? Can I yeah, yeah. You guys and like, I want to say thank you to Pennywise and Fletcher and the House of Vans. These guys are our old friends. They handpicked us to play with them. Thank These guys you. are our buddies. Look out for us always. Good guys. We should be doing a back and forth split stage song for song. That's great. I'll let you handle the wall of death tonight, bitch. <laughs> oh, one final question. Did you like all, any of those records that were on Pessimizer? Yeah, yeah. You were into that stuff? Mm-hmm. A that's, little bit. I mean, it's that's pretty fucking awesome. It's pretty, it's pretty fucking crazy shit. I've always wanted to hear that. That's awesome. Thank you very much. Right. Thank you. Greg and Fletcher, legends! Thank you, Craig and Fletcher, for coming on the show. And they will both be back for part twos, uh, respectively, in the near future. Uh, I cannot wait because there's so much more to get to. Ow! That was only like 37 minutes. How much goodness was packed into that? Oh, I love this podcast. Ah, This is the best podcast in the world. I don't care. Like, it has nothing to do with me. It's just because, you know, I just get to set up these dominoes and... Watch him fall. Oh, oh, I love doing this thing. Speaking of loving doing this thing, next week on this show, someone that I've wanted to have on this show for a very long time because I knew it was going to be a fun conversation. Next week on the show, from Charles Bronson, Das Oath, Youth Attack Records, Mark McCoy, tons of other bands. We get into some of it next week, but... It's turned into punk, so obviously things move pretty slowly here. Uh, in terms of people's career, you know, the, the, the episodes keep flying, flying at you. Um, speaking of flying at you, if you live on the west coast of the United States, or, or I guess part of the west coast of Canada too, uh, we are going to be flying to you. And by we, I mean fucked up the band that I sing in, and I cannot wait to come there and and you know, hang out. I'm going to be going to Phoenix all the way up to Vancouver. We're going to be playing uh, some shows. You can find out more details at fuckedup.cc. It'll be a really good time. So come out to those shows and hang out and, and talk and 
bring, you know, cannabis, if you will, and we will we'll have a good time. I look forward to seeing everyone on tour. All right, that's it. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you to Chuck. Thank you to Vans. Thank you to Brooke at Vans. Thank you to Tristan. Uh, thank you to, to you for listening out there. Thank you, of course, to John Jughead Pearson for coming on the show. Thank you to Craig and Fletcher for coming on the show. And that's it. Thank you to you. Thank you to you for listening. And I will see you next week. Go out there and make your own culture. Please sign your organ donor cards uh, and come and see me. All right. Love you, everyone. Bye.